Welcome everyone. This is Jessica Toft and I want to thank you for joining us for our third podcast in our series of three related to neoliberalism's impact on social welfare and social work practice in the United States with an emphasis on child welfare work. Today we will be learning about the findings of a research project that asked social service workers about their practice life under the pressures of neoliberalism. We are privileged to talk with Dr. Mimi Abramovitz and Dr. Jennifer Zelnick, who conducted this large-scale study in New York City. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm really pleased to have two uh, amazing guests with us today. Um, Mimi Abramovitz, uh, a lot of the social workers in the audience will know her. Uh, she is the Bertha Capen Reynolds Professor of Social Policy at the Silberman School of Social Work, Hunter College, and the CUNY Graduate Center. Uh, she's widely published in the area of women, poverty, and the welfare state, and currently she's researching the impact of austerity on the human service workforce. Um, in addition to her numerous articles, she is the author of Regulating the Lives of Women, Social Welfare Policy from Colonial Times to the Present. She is currently writing a book, Gendered Obligations, a History of Activism Among Black and White Low-Income Women Since 1900. Uh, and she began her career as a welfare worker in the state of Connecticut. And most recently, she received the 2018 Significant Lifetime Achievement in Social Work Education Award from the Council on Social Work Education. And we're really privileged to have you with us here today. Thank you for being with us. Um, and Jennifer Zelnick, a professor and social welfare policy chair at the Toro College Graduate School of Social Work. She holds a master's degree in social work and a doctorate in public health and conducts research in the United States and South Africa. Um, and she is a public health social worker uh, committed to bringing social work skills into public health research and services, investigating topics of importance to the health and social service workplace, um, and that the quality of health and social services and successful outcomes depend on sustainable work environments, which are determined by social policy. Um, and Dr. Zelnick's work investigates the impact of factors of, of austerity, managerialism, and privatization on the social service workplace and social work profession. Um, and I know you have an organizing and occupational health and safety policy background. Um, and so your research is geared um, uh, on a policy that will help us have more healthier work environments for, for our direct practice workers. Um, I want to thank you both again for sharing your expertise uh, with us today, um, uh, and I like we'll just get started. Um, so, first of all, I cannot tell you how pleased I am that you're guests for our third and final podcast of the series on the effects of neoliberalism in social work and child welfare practice. Uh, in the first podcast, we uh, delved into what neoliberalism means. It's a it's a complex topic, so we took some time to talk about that. Um, and how we can know it when we see it in the workplace. And in the second podcast, we covered the literature on how neoliberalism is evident in child welfare practice in particular, um, and due to the scoping study project we had here at the School of Social Work. Uh, and so with this installment, we will be able to hear about what I believe is a unique in the field about a large scale study on the effects of neoliberal managerialism on social work and social service practice. And uh, Mimi and Jen, I, I learned of your work on managerialism from a colleague who had recently moved from New York City. 
uh, who knew about your um, your uh, work and the study that you wrote. Um, and it was called, and she sent she sent it to me. It's called "Business as Usual: Wake Up Call for the Human Services." And it, and so it was results for the human service workforce study. And as I read it, I thought, this is it. This is this is what we, more people need to hear about people who are direct line workers. And um, I think this is really important for child welfare practitioners to learn about. And so to start us off, um, thought I'd ease us into the topic of how you got interested in studying. I'm calling it neoliberal managerialism in the first place. Well. Um... Thanks, Jessica, for all of that and for the lovely intro. Um, this is something that Mimi and I have been talking about uh, for a long time. We work together teaching policy to social work students. And, you know, initially this really grew out of the stories we were hearing in the classroom from our students as we discussed the history and development of social welfare policies in this country. Uh, we started to hear uh, more and more concerning stories about um, uh, you know, problems that people were encountering um, in their field placements or in their workplace. And this really um, attracted our attention to this topic. Um, in terms of where I was coming from personally, you know, I had worked for years um, with, with nurses who were, you know, delivering services in an environment but that was increasingly constrained by a business model. And um, in this environment, you know, we were seeing increases in stress and injury and burnout. And um, the stories that I was hearing from students made me realize it sounded like very similar dynamics and also that we didn't have the same advocacy around these topics in social work that you have in the medical field. Um, so those were, those were some of my you know, original reasons for wanting to study this topic this way. Yeah, so just in addition, um, I, I teach, uh, as Jen said, we both teach social welfare policy. I teach. Uh, when I teach it to students, their first semester in a master's program, so they're really green. They don't even necessarily know what social policy is, much less neoliberalism or managerialism. So I had to, I wanted to find a way to explain to them, who, because they're just entering social, like how and why the social services do not always are not always like what they read in the books, or not always like what we um, what they what they hope they would be, and that. But I also wanted them to know that these problems were not accidental, that what, what the, the sort of the quality of work that Jen just mentioned and referred to is not, accident, not accidental, and that it actually represented a, an intentional policy strategy called neoliberalism, which your audience uh, knows all about now, that good to your earlier uh, podcast, and that neoliberalism was intentionally introduced in the mid-1970s and took, uh, in the United States, and took center stage with the election of uh, President Reagan. Now, most of my students were adults since Reagan. They knew nothing about earlier periods like some of us on this podcast did. Um, and uh, so since, since I'm a critic of neoliberalism, um, I wanted them to know that it had not always been this way. I wanted them to have a little sense that it, why we have it, where did it come from? And there was a prior period called the New Deal that went from the 30s to, after, to the 70s. And when the, the human services, they're far from perfect, but we're not so mean-spirited. So um, they were less market-driven, more humane, and I wanted them to know that they could be changed. So this is a strategy to say, where did this come from? And to, to let people know, I hope, that what is done can be undone. And it's such a wonderful message, I think, about this 
podcast happening during the time of COVID and after the, the protests of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and history becomes so important, doesn't it? That there are that these these are constructed by people, humans, and we can construct and with other things that have worked maybe before or in different ways, we can use our, our power and imagination. So because in the po- the prior podcast, we were talking about neoliberalism and we hadn't talked about managerialism specifically, I was hoping maybe you could um, give your definition for you know what is managerialism? Maybe how does it fit into your idea of what neoliberalism is? I'll start with that. So um, first of all, as you probably know by now, uh, neoliberalism defines the landscape of the human services, child welfare, mental health services, but with troubling implications for all areas. The goal of neoliberalism, as we define it, is to redistribute income upwards from the have-nots, from the poor to the haves, the top 1%, the rich, and downsize or shrink the, the, the safety net or what we call the welfare state. So how do they do this? There are five tactics that we talk about, and they should be familiar to most of you. One is tax cuts, the infamous tax cuts. These have been going on since the mid-70s, all of these budget cuts. I mean, who doesn't suffer budget cuts? Privatization. Privatization shifts responsibility from social welfare, um, responsibility for social welfare from the public to the private sector. Devolution, that word is probably less familiar, but it basically means shifting responsibility from for social welfare from the federal government to the states. I don't know, I'm sure that's going on in child welfare, but welfare reform is the iconic example of that. And then reducing the power of social movements, attacking the social movements who brought, helped construct, the, sort of put, build pressure for the welfare state and they're, they're best positioned to fight back. So if you're going to tear down the welfare state, you don't want them getting in your way. So privatization, now the third strategy I mentioned is privatization. It's the strategy that links neoliberalism to managerialism. When most people think of privatization, however, they think of privatizing Social Security or privatizing Medicare, which um, uh, politicians have uh, on and off tried to do but have failed so far. But another form of privatization occurs within, inside our human service organizations, both public and nonprofit. And so we call this managerialism, it's the operationalization of privatization within human service organizations. Yeah, so that, that's a, you know, the beautiful contextualization of the history of where privatization fits in. And something that, um, you know, Mimi and I went back and did when we started to think about managerialism was to really rethink privatization in terms of the whole history of, of, um, of social welfare policy. Um, because, you know, here in the U.S., the private sector is a very important um, player in terms of how we structure our lives and think about our well-being, and so there has always been this tension between, you know, the role of the federal government, particularly since the New Deal, and the role of the private sector in delivering social welfare. And and so we we began to look at privatization in terms of really three phases, um, and managerialism is one of those phases, and it's really a phase we're still in right now. But um, you know, originally, even within our public services in the New Deal, we always had some degree. Of, of a role for the private sector. Um, you know, we had the, um, you know, the food stamp program, which was an early example of bringing sort of agricultural markets into the provision of food for people that needed it. And so, you know, in thinking about it, we, we sort of identified there's always been this role for marketization 
um, and, and then even for, for the private sector. But managerialism, which is the second phase of um, privatization, was really introduced at a time when the role of the public sector was coming into question, um, you know, in the late 60s and the early 70s. And there, you know, at that time, there was, you know, a real backlash against the war on poverty programs and the role of federal government and the size of um, private programs. And so within that backlash, there was, you know, sort of a twin thing going on. First of all, that we, um, you know, that we should be thinking about issues like accountability and efficiency when we look at how we're spending public dollars um, before we even start thinking about the well-being of people that use those funds. So that's one aspect of managerialism. And then the second is really um, the fact that a lot of our um, services within our mixed welfare state in the U.S., they include public sector services and private nonprofit delivered services such as child welfare. And so, you know, in these areas, you have a lot of contracting. So this is another opportunity to sort of import the business model through the nature of the types of contracting that we have in the sector. And that's another aspect of managerialism. But I think in short, you know, the big picture is really thinking about bringing a business model into the human services and um, the same questions that we would attach to the delivery of private sector production or private sector services, we would attach to the delivery of social services. And that is really the goal of managerialism. Um, the third phase of privatization, just to mention it, we're not really going to talk about it today, is something we call financialization, uh, which is um, you know, the in importing of um, investment opportunities within the human service sector. Um, and, and we have seen you know, very good examples of how private companies have actually extracted money out of the federal government, sometimes you know, in the service of solving social problems. And so that's something we've seen happen in a lot of different sectors. But we're gonna leave that aside for today and really just focus on managerialism, you know, importing the business model into the human services. I, I would love to talk more about that at some point. I think that these are, this is such an important conversation for um, social service workers, child welfare workers, social workers understand, because we don't often talk about these kinds of terms or ideas. And just the idea of taking a business model of management and applying it to services for the well-being of humans, that there, there are some difficult, um, uh, you know, uh, circles to square, you know, here that, that, you know, how do you treat humans uh, within, a, in, within an efficiency model um, and so we, you know, there's more there, but certainly neoliberalism, um, that the governance strategies are really where we feel neoliberalism as citizens and residents. And so this is, this seems to be where managerialism lies is how do we govern, uh, and, through contracting, uh, especially in social work. Um, so let's get to your study then. Um, you, you were interested in what does this look like? How is it affecting the, uh, direct line workers and supervisors and et cetera. I'll let you tell us about the study. So who was involved? And uh, in general, what were you interested in finding out when you began the study? Right, so in, in order to start the study, we really began engaging with a lot of uh, uh, different actors and uh, players within the greater New York metropolitan area who had a shared interest in some of these topics. And uh, because we wanted to overcome sort of a limitation of some research in this field, which is that, 
you know, different um, types of services are studied separately, whether it's, you know, substance abuse treatment or child welfare services or services for the elderly. We really wanted to look at what the trends were across different sectors. So in order to do that, we needed to really um, collaborate on the front end with a wide range of, um, of partners who could help us conduct this research. And so uh, we, we went around and we had a lot of discussions and a lot of meetings and we ended up um, collaborating with um, several community partners, including the chapter, the city chapter of NASW, um, a couple of um, sort of agency coalitions, including the settlement, the coalition of settlement house agencies here in New York City, a coalition of human service agencies called the Human Services Council, um, a coalition of behavioral health agencies, and additionally the union that represents um, the child welfare workers who are in the public sector as well as our public assistance workforce. Um, and so by involving all these partners on the ground, this was you know, how we created our access to frontline workers in all these areas, and also this informed the development of our, our survey and our questions and our language and so forth. You know, you just reminded me, I'm going to talk about what we were looking for, but um, we also, in another partner, was it something called the non New York Nonprofit Press, which doesn't exist anymore, but they actually posted a link to our survey on their um, newsletter, electronic newsletter, so it helped us c collect um, uh, a, a very big, we'll discuss it later, but a large number of people participated in the study because of all these partners and and I was always very happy about the nonprofit press and sorry to see they disappeared from the scene. Yes, well, ironically, the nonprofit press sort of got bought up by a larger media conglomerate and the character of it changed quite a bit. Right. So it, exactly. it seemed to really reflect what was happening, you know, within the stuff we were studying at that time. Um, so it was a real loss. To the yeah, community. But it's so impressive how many different kinds of social service providers you got uh, who, who were involved and were interested. And, and it demonstrates also for New York City, for us in Minnesota, just what a rich um, and, and diverse group of social service providers you have. So it was, uh, it's, it's large scale. And how, so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how many um, you know, people were involved and, and a little bit more about the survey itself. Well, actually, um, I have one more thing we want to add before oh, we go please, there. Oh, okay. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so uh, just, just to uh, foreshadow that, what um, you asked what we were interested in, what we were trying to find and oh, so yes. on. So let yes, me just yes, say yes, a few yes. words yeah, about we that. In. So we wanted to know what <laughs> we wanted to know how ma what managerialism looked like in the agencies. We had been buried in the literature reading all about it, uh, international and, and U.S. studies. Um, but we hadn't seen much written about it in the United States, so that was like one of our goals. What are the features of managerialism, which we'll be talking about soon? Um, how did it affect the quality of work? How did it affect the life of frontline workers on the job um, who were implementing this? Um, what did they think of managerialism? What did the frontline workers think of managerialism? How did they manage it? How did they cope with it? So those are the kind of things we looked at. Now, I just want to add, we were not happy about managerialism from the start. So people say, well, weren't you biased? Didn't you, you know, aren't you going to find what you expected? Well, we're good researchers. We were well-trained, and we know how to put your biases on the side. So we asked, we asked, we had a long list of features of managerialism that we'd collected from uh, uh, the literature items that it 
were manifestations of managerialism. And so we get, this was our survey was based on this list. Um, and we asked people to tell us if they viewed any of these things as basically problematic or not problematic. So we let them say it wasn't a problem. If they had said it wasn't a problem, our critique would have been uh, rejected or disproved. Um, that's not what happened, but that's just to say we were able to put our biases aside and set the questionnaire up so it would capture whatever people were really thinking. And we'll more on this later. Well, I um, and I want to say too, because here in Minnesota, certainly, um, and NESW, I was a president for the, at the chapter for a while, and I can't tell you how many social workers came up to me and talked about this feeling of pressure and speed up and stress, and. So it's, it's, it's one of those things that you notice from the literature, but also just anecdotally, you know, having been in this profession for a number of decades, you can just, you can kind of, you feel it and you hear it and you see it. Right. So there's some other, yeah. 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 We had that experience. So that's yeah. what Jen was referring to right, in the beginning. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it was all, I mean, people were talking about it, but they didn't know what it was. And they just thought, this is how things are. And we wanted to say, one, it didn't have to be this way. And two, it came from somewhere. It, so that's goes back to what we said before, yeah. And I think, you know, just to, um, you know, it really is about connecting the dots for a lot of them because social workers tend to think about the person in front of them and the individual in front of them or the family or the community and not so much at these structural levels. But I think that's the, you know, I think the big lesson, you know, that's running throughout this conversation is that we do need to pay attention um, to history and to what's happening to the structure of our sector if we're going to be able to continue to do the work that we that we need to do. Exactly, exactly. Right, excellent. Well, so let's let's get more into a little bit of, about the specific questions that you asked in the survey um, and so that the listeners get a sense of what, what, what exactly did you ask? Uh, maybe, and maybe as they're listening, they might think to themselves, how would I answer that question? <laughs> right, well, so um, just to, to give a little background of what the survey was and how we delivered it, it was, it was a cross-sectional survey, meaning that it was like a point-in-time question about a variety of topics, um, although, you know, we did try to phrase the questions so that we could have people reflect on, you know, their, their, either their whole career or their recent experience. Um, it was an online uh, anonymous survey, meaning that people could access it via their smartphone or their computer or their workplace. It made it very easy to distribute. Um, uh, it, we also included um, open-ended questions. So mainly the questions were, you know, yes, you know, had the question format Mimi was referring to, whether something was a major problem, a minor problem, not a problem, or it just didn't exist in their workplace. Uh, but we also had some opportunity for open-ended response, and we got um, hundreds of pages of notes of open-ended responses as well. Um, you know, we ended up with over 3,000 responses, uh, about 3,027 responses, and then we looked at uh, who among those were actually living in the New York metro region and working in the sector currently, and we restricted it down to about 20 2,700 or so um, at the end that we used for analysis. Um, and so Mimi's going to talk a little bit about um, the profile of who we heard from and kind of diversity of people. I mean, we also had a very, had almost a 40% response rate, which is very high for surveys in general. Usually it's about 15% if you're lucky. So we were, uh, I would, we said it after we started reading the comments and 
the results that we felt we hit a nerve. We were people sort of got it. People were, really wanted to ventilate and talk about the kind of questions and, and what we would um, the host situation that they now had a name for. Okay, so first we gathered demographic in, info because we wanted to know who was going to be talking to us. So just briefly, um, that 80% were women, 45% persons of color, 60% uh, frontline workers with the rest being higher on the hierarchy, about 70% in nonprofits, 27% in the uh, public sector, and 67% uh, belonged to a union, and 50% were um, MSWs. So in many ways, this sample, even though it was kind of an accidental sample, was um, uh, represented our field. Those kind of, except for we had many more people of color than surveys usually capture, and that's because of the help of the union and because of the public sector largely, and also uh, we had a lot more union members. Most surveys don't even collect union, identify union members or even approach them. So we felt very proud of this three thousand people that we felt it was a good sample, and the overrepresented groups were important to hear from. Um, we focused on key, key areas, um, service provision, things like supervision, access, advocacy, professional autonomy, the quality of service, a whole bunch of things, working conditions, staffing, training, control over the job, um, and uh, impact on the workers like burnout, morale, stress, job satisfaction, and turnover. And so... We, we didn't have a lot, we didn't want to say a lot about this, but I just pulled out the survey because you asked for a couple of questions. So I'm going to say a couple. Okay. Okay. So, so I, I'm just, well, I'm just looking at the survey. So we, we had, we had these, these areas like service, stability, working conditions. And then we had, you know, eight, five, four, three questions under each one. So under this one about program issues, we had, um, the, the people we serve have too many, requirements like eligibility a problem not a problem we had a few we, we calibrated that a little more but basically a, a, a problem not a problem or doesn't it's not an issue here or um uh the staff and the program staff and funders have different definitions of successful outcomes and so they could say yes or no so we, these are the things that we know are sort of the features of managerialism that are, present problems but they could tell us yes or no Problematic or not problematic? So, I mean, there are a hundred questions. <laughs> I was going to say one that came to mind to me because we're speaking, you know, to people that work in the child welfare sector in particular is, um, you know, we had a question about the need to open and close cases quickly. And so we know in many states, um, you know, there's some guidelines here in New York, we have this, that you, as a caseworker, you can only have a certain amount of open cases and you have to close a certain amount per month and that you have a manager overseeing, that you're meeting those guidelines. And so this was you know, the kind of question that we thought was really important to capture how much pressure that was putting on people. Yeah. I'd just like to add one more that I think is widespread. We had, the statement was, computers come between the staff and the people we serve. So because, of the, because our own experience in doctor's offices where the doctors were typing into the computer when we went for our own visit, so, and we know that happens in social agencies, and it, it's, it does, we felt it could possibly come between that relationship-building activity that's so key and central to social work, and of course that ranked, people, many people found that problematic. So we could go on and on, but I think that's, that gives you a sense of what we were, what we were uh, 
getting at. I, and I, I, I'm hearing that you're, you're really tapping into those pieces of managerialism about the productivity. So then closing cases quickly doesn't mean that necessarily they're resolved well, right? right? But they're closed quickly. And, uh, you know, and so that those sort of pressures are, are, um, are problematic and, and the um, computer being between you and your client and the relationship building, these are the key aspects of social work with the relationship and quality outcomes and justice and equity and those sort of get sort of squashed in this sort of a model, it seems like listening to you so but i'm interested in what you find out i mean you, you know in terms of the of the, the responses well you, you got it because you started to foreshadow some other thing which is oh, yeah, great yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm going to start with that so we had of all these items that we, we used um uh so we we worked with the 30 of these items that reported that were reported problematic by 50 percent of the people so that there's a whole nother set that we didn't analyze because they were they they were under 50% of the people reported them as problematic. These 30 items fell into four categories that you've been kind of referencing. And they reflect the business model, or what we call the logic of the market. We think the business model is the logic of the market. Those items that I'm going to mention now are, you find businesses talk about them all the time. So, so they are um, productivity or speed up. So that related things to the pace of work, too much work, too fast, not enough time. And 80% of the respondents, this, for each one of these items, 80% or more of the respondents said they were problematic. That was our highest number, but that's huge. That's like almost everybody. The second one was accountability, which we called countdown. And here we have to say that everybody wants to be accountability. But in the past, human service had a definition of accountability, which focused on professional ethics, community needs, social justice. Managerial or business model accountability is different. It focuses on measuring, measuring, quantifying performance outcomes, quantifying success, reporting and documenting all this so that it can be reported to funders and to administrators. And so, to, so we things about how much time spent tracking, reporting, use of measures. Seventy to seventy-nine percent of the people wrote said these were too uh, 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 problematic. Efficiency. The third item was uh, biggest bang for the buck. We, we gave each one of them a nickname, <laughs> um, and this meant using you know too much over, overuse of agency resources um, to save money or or you know uh, or to cut back on things to, to be efficient. So the bottom line, sort of focus on the bottom line, which interferes with the quality of service, basically. And 53 to 77% of people said these were problematic. And then the last thing we looked at was standardization, which sort of a product of all this was the routinization of services. And we got at this by asking about the reliance on electronic data, prescribed evidence-based practices, and ongoing documentation, all of which sort of takes the juice out of social work, what we know is social work and relationship building and um, sort of creates rigid categories that we have to put people into. So in about 50 to 68%. So productivity, accountability, efficiency and standardization are the four categories that um, the answers to these 30 items uh, fell into and that became sort of the framework for how we understand uh, managers. And that also corresponds to the literature. I mean, you were referencing it and, and it's in the literature. These terms come up over and over again in the literature. So we felt like we had captured what was really going on, the survey did. Yes. Have you had a chance to um, 
stand in front of a group of social service providers and present your findings and hear them uh, respond to your to your work and I'm wondering what that was like and what you heard well I think occasionally people raise issues you yeah. know some people some people actually like this measurement probably they think it um, uh, makes us better and to some mm -hmm. extent that, that that is a potential but the way it's organized and carried out now it, it sort of loses that capacity uh, mostly people mm -hmm. are nodding their heads there they, we start hearing stories about oh this is what happened to me this is what happened mm -hmm. and and it, one of the sessions uh, Jessica with the three of us shared at the Council of Social Work Education yes, yeah. we, we asked people that question we had them in groups and and they're all educators. And they started talking about the same thing in the yeah. schools of social work. Yeah. So it, it even goes there. So people just, you remember, they just, it just came out. We didn't even ask them that, and it just, it just came out. So, yes, it's, it resonates. Um, I think, yeah, Jen, so you were going to add something yeah, about ahead. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was going to add another dimension. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I agree that it resonates. And I feel like depending on the audience we were speaking with, you know, um, I would say that it's a very cathartic experience mm -hmm. to be in a room mm -hmm. where something that you're experiencing is identified and all of a sudden you're given you know the permission and the and the voice to really start to talk about it and mm -hmm. so we had originally called our survey your voice is needed and you know our idea was really giving voice to some of these problems um, and giving a platform to people that wanted to talk about them without being labeled a complainer or mm -hmm. you know, somebody who wasn't going along with the program and that's really been attention for a lot of people. Um, I wanted to follow up on some of the things we found that were alarming though, because when, you know, what Mimi is talking about with um, productivity, efficiency, accountability, and standardization, these are really the methods for, you know, we call it operationalizing managerialism. And it's really like, how is it done? How are you gonna move this abstract idea that we need to do more with less and we need to increase productivity specifically into the human services. And so, you know, this really gave us a chance to do that. But when we looked at our um, participants, we noticed, you know, that managerialism was not um, being implemented equally in all workplaces. And so we wanted to get a, a, you know, a sense of how that was and how the degree of managerialism, we called it commitment to managerialism at the agency level might correlate with some outcomes or some you know, other problems people were, rec were reporting. And indeed, we did find that. Um, so we created a, um, a scale based on those 30 items. And, uh, and we called it the Organizational Commitment to Managerialism Scale, um, which is a mouthful. But you know, essentially, we use this scale to take a look at service delivery, um, you know, some of the things that agencies need to do, as well as um, some of the important outcomes on clients and on the workforce, and we found um, you know, a really clear trend, and that trend really indicated that in the agencies where the commitment to managerialism was greater, we tended to see more problems, more adverse um, identification of adverse you know, issues for clients, such as you know, lack of access to services, um, the feeling that people, that the agency wasn't meeting the client's needs, um, some of the uh, outcomes of burnout and turnover, which I'll talk about more in a moment. Um, but on the other hand, we saw that agencies that had a lower commitment to managerialism were actually doing far better on some of these things, um, particularly things like adhering to the social work mission mm -hmm. or you know, um, focusing on relationship building with clients. Uh, and so we came to think of these things as the logic of social work. And so you know, to put it in a nutshell, 
we found that there was a, um, a contradiction between the commitment to managerialism and the logic of social work. At the same time, you know, on a positive side, we saw that agencies that had, were less committed to you know, doing the speed up and focusing on performance outcomes were able to retain a little bit more of the, you know, the, um, the, the criteria and the, and the things that, um, that really make social service agencies places of safety, places where people can get their diverse needs met, you know, places where um, human service workers are free to use their skills, whether they're professional like an MSW, or even you know, not at that educational level, but just professional either from direct experience or years in the field. You know, all these things that characterize our field um, comprise the logic of social work. So uh, we, were, we were relieved to see that, um, that there were still places where this was hanging on. And it was a really striking correlation between this commitment to managerialism score and the existence of, you know, logic of social work. That's really fascinating. And I'm wondering if, um, if you happen to know in those organizations where they did not have such a commitment to managerialism, if they were funded a little differently than the other places, or if you've had a chance to look at that to see whether or not how much contracting maybe in the screw, you know, the tightening of the screws and co that contracting allows. Yeah, I think okay. that's really for future research yeah. in the sense that, um, you know, we were cross-sectional, as I said, so it was like a point in time measure. We could see these associations, but we couldn't really look at the cause. But one thing that we were able to look at was sort of the distribution of this. And we did find that um, in those services that tended to be more stigmatized populations, um, there tended to be a harsher discipline and a harsher use of managerialism. So um, places that dealt with public assistance, people on public assistance, child welfare, um, substance abuse, homeless services, tended to be more at the mercy of some of these practices. Whereas um, so-called um, deserving, you know, if you look at the history of social welfare policy, we, we've tended to see some populations in our society as more um, quote unquote deserving of services. So youth um, populations, the elder population, uh, the education sector tended to be a little less constrained um, by managerialism, at least among our respondents. But again, I think that question that you're asking about what caused that difference needs to be fleshed out. Our survey wasn't, we have some ideas, but it wasn't definitive. But it's, I mean, I would just add to that, speculate that Whoever the funder was, a public or a private, we didn't ask who the funder was, so we're really not sure. But it, anecdotally, it doesn't seem to matter. Funders of all kinds put these requirements on. Uh, place a homeless person in after nine visits. Get someone to work, or, you know, real quickly. And so um, it, 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 the contracts are one way of carrying out that message, and that's why they get a lot of attention. But it doesn't matter who the funders are. Um, they, the, the, the contracts tell you what you have to do, and so they become a real burden because in, in a lot of agencies have six contracts, and they all have different measures, and, they, and so it, it drives agency people more the not the frontline workers, they have to put the data in, but the people who have to work um, with the data up above, it's just, it's it it it, it breaks it, it it I don't know I can't even find the word for it, it makes them t tear their hair out. Yes, I, and I would. Yeah, and I, I would add to that that sometimes we see these things even at the level of federal policy or state policy. So if you're thinking of child welfare, you know, we know we've had, you know, since the late 80s, a federal policy in place that says that you have a certain amount of time to get your act together as a parent 
or your parental rights will be terminated. You know, and this is an effort to you know adjust uh, to you know affect outcomes in the foster care system, and, and there's some you know reason to want to get things to move along, and yet. You know, some of these um, time limits and, and requirements on paper really make it difficult for, for parents and families to achieve certain goals um, under child welfare policy. Public or private, they're all funders. The state funds itself. So they're all, they're all built into the funding. If you don't do this, we're going to take your money away, either as the, for the agency, but you're also describing if you don't behave right as a client, we're going to take your money away or take your kids away. So, yeah, it's, it's very insidious. Um, so... So maybe I should go on to this other thing we wanted to talk about, um, which was an, another alarming finding that we, we really weren't looking for. But when we when we analyzed the data by race, we found some evidence of what uh, we felt comfortable calling institutionalized racism. So first of all was the um, uh, the, um, the the hierarchy that. People, people of the people of color tended to be at the bottom, and white people tend to be in the top level positions. Pretty, I'm not going to go through the numbers, but pretty much that's what it was. So you have that standard, what I call plantation um, hierarchy, um, and um, and then, but also people of color reported more. Prop, certain things were hitting people of color harder. Certain things that we were looking at these things of these thirty items were. Uh, hitting people uh, harder. It had to do with, one had to do with supervision. So if there's supervisors here, listen to this, but don't take it as criticism. It's just part of the way the system works. But lack of support, feedback, and respect from supervisors ranked very high among everybody, but higher among people of colors, which that was the alarm bell there. Lack of coworker support and not enough training. We understand that supervisors can provide the work and the, the feedback and the support they want to because they are victims of managerialism as well. So it trickles down through the host system. So that um, what was also interesting was that the two items, two of the two items that we looked at were burnout and morale. This was high for everybody. Did, did not come out higher for what, regardless of what your race was or how you identified as a race. But the pieces of people of color, persons of color, had reported more concerns as more problematic things about lack of professional autonomy, ethical conflicts, thinking of leaving my job or turnover, job dissatisfaction, a whole bunch of physical health issues, and an unhealthy work environment. Always much more, hearing more that these are more problematic. High for everybody, but even higher for people of of color. So. Um, if you think of these, these are structural things. These are not things that people do. They're structural things in the environment that that managerialism intensifies, exacerbates, and maybe sometimes creates. So it left us feeling that racial equity may be another casualty of managerialism that we did not look at them. But now, given the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement and what's going on today, it makes perfect sense that this is what we're seeing in our agencies and we have to take care of internal racism as well as, I mean, in, inside our, our profession. And just one other point is that advocacy. We had a couple of questions about advocacy and of course, managerialism and advocacy don't go so well together given everything. So we said when you have productivity, efficiency, accountability, advocacy becomes constrained. Um, and so there was very little time or resources left for advocacy. And again, more, more persons of color, however, were interested about agency not seeking input from clients in the community. Those were two of our measures of advocacy. So um, 
uh, yeah, it's a, a real problematic picture here. So many things were alarming, and if, if we had another two hours, we could uh, go on and on. I did want to I did want to point to a couple of things though um, that uh, just to close out the the commitment to managerialism because like Mimi was talking about you know we did find a lot of trends that were um, exacerbated by race but we also found that for everybody um, in places where there was a higher commitment to managerialism we saw worse impacts on the workforce um, and these included things like burnout morale turnover. Um, whether people were thinking of leaving their jobs, whether they felt that their work was important, um, whether they, you know, um, saw co-workers thinking of leaving their jobs, um, whether they felt like they, their professional autonomy was respected. And so these were, I think, the most devastating, some of the most devastating parts of our survey was to see not just that these things were happening to people, but that people were, um, you know, feeling so uh, devastated by them. And, um, you know, we also uh, did some survey on, on health issues and we found a pretty strong correlation between uh, managerialism, stress, and some other uh, measures of workplace health. And this is an area for, you know, social workers and social service workers that we don't always think about so much. Um, there are health issues themselves, but then there's also a pathway from um, stress conditions to health issues. Um, and it's something that, uh, you know, anecdotally, I think people talk quite a lot about. Um, you know, the other um, thing I wanted to mention um, in regards to some of the, the racialized outcomes is that we saw certain health conditions were worse among our um, African-American and uh, Latinx participants. Um, and then also that, uh, more troubling, we saw uh, reports of workplace violence that were um, pronounced among some of these populations, as well as the feeling that if they wanted to seek, you know, uh, somebody's ear to hear about what was happening, that they would not be listened to. Um, and so, again, this was among the most troubling things to see within our results. Um, and it's a reason why we always talk about it when we present these results, um, uh, just so we have the opportunity to get the word out about that. All these things that Jen, Jen just mentioned are exacerbated by race. People of color experience it worse, more and worse, find it more problematic, and also by um, the, whether the clientele is deserving or undeserving, which Jen was talking about. So in the, in the child welfare public assistance, so the, the agencies that serve the most vulnerable people, the people who are hardest hit by inequality and poverty, are also, see, are also the agencies that are most managerialist. So you see some of the, you know, it's just like COVID is ex revealing all the existing disparities. Well, in some way, our look at managerialism um, revealed some existing disparities that we might not have thought of in the same way. We knew they were there, but it put it all together. We began to see the, the, the it's, it's reproducing. The social services and managerialism are kind of reproducing huge problems that already exist in the field. And so that's, you know, that's sort of an added piece here that um, today's world is helping us see that even more clearly that our study did that. It's becoming clearer in today's world. It's, it's really just listening to you talk about this. It, it becomes, this conversation becomes so important in, a, in a, so many levels because we are researching and working in a field that is, just, is majority women and uh, persons of color uh, have, it's a large portion of our workforce so in positioning in society already, social workers 
tend to have and social service providers tend not to have the power that many other professions and groups so we we are already sort of a disenfranchised profession uh, within professions in, in a way and that ha and so it feels in a way that it, it's easier um, in some ways to institute this sort of a um, uh, method or governance strategy in such a profession where you, where the people maybe have not had the experience of being empowered and I know in New York City you have unions that are um, pretty active in Minnesota I'm not sure what our percentage of social service providers are actually unionized it's um, but the conversation that we're, we're that we are having right now about naming these this what's happening and how it works and um, and using the language of managerialism and the ideas of incentive incentivizing and sanctioning and productivity and um, questioning what role supervisors have here in terms of being the interpreter of neoliberal policy that then gets interpreted and then is applied with direct line workers. These are these are things maybe that uh, we as social workers or social service professionals haven't had a name for, but once we have a name for it, we can now start to talk about it more and we can start to do more things with it. And um, so I'm, I'm really um, happy to have this conversation with you and help get these tools, they're actually political tools, uh, that direct line workers can, um, can, that can now use and talk about and think about um, within their work. Um, so that's, I just wanted to say that out loud because I think that's really important uh, a part of, uh, of having an empowered workforce. Um, so um, I, I, maybe, I don't know if we've, it, it, do you want to have any other editorial uh, about you know, what, your vision of what do you think the state of social services what do we look like uh, today under managerialism? I would say if, if time is an issue that we've kind of answered that pretty okay. much. We might yeah. want to spend more time on this, yeah. the next question. Okay. Yeah. Let's go for it. So um, what do you think social work and social workers should do then as a profession? We started, we started getting into this maybe a little bit yeah. to push back against neoliberal managerialism. Perfect well, question after what you just said. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd just gone to that one. Right. I think... You know, I th so I think there's some practical steps um, within the workplace and within the um, spaces that we find ourselves in. Um, and first of all, we need to listen to human service workers, right? Just as right now we're saying we need to listen to these voices in the street that are telling us what their experiences are of these systems and these structures. Uh, we need to listen to human service workers speaking on behalf of themselves and the clients that they serve about what's really going on. Uh, because we do find um, a lot of places where, um, you know, workers are bending over backwards, finding ways to, con to do the work that they want to do within this structure. And they are often making huge sacrifices of their own time and their own well-being, their own health, to deliver on the performance measurement side for their agency, but also to meet the clients where they are and satisfy their needs. So I think we really need to listen to human service workers and, and our survey is one way to do that and we can create other ways to do that. Um, and then ultimately, I think we also need to have social work at the table when we're thinking about designing programs, designing um, you know, treatment goals, design, deciding what outcomes we're looking at from programs, um, thinking about measurement and design because in reality, this is the world that we're in now and we are going to be you know, pursuing evidence bases for the things that we do. And that's, that's all right and good, but we need to figure out how to do it on our own terms. As you were saying, we're a disempowered workforce and, and if we are having these negotiations in spaces where we lack power, then we are not gonna get the outcomes that uphold 
you know, the vision of the world that we need to do the job that we want to do. So, you know, listening to human service workers, making sure we have a space at the table, whether that's a table that concerns research or policy or practice decisions um, or community decisions, you know, we need, we need to be there. So that's, that's one area. Um, the second is that um, sometimes we need to challenge the business model and sometimes we do that by bending the rules. Um, you know, often uh, people are um, not cooperating with the things they're being asked to do that are unrealistic. And, you know, we, we sort of tiptoed around this issue in our survey, but we found that many human service workers admitted that in their agencies, you know, people were fudging numbers. People were, you know, saying what they needed to say to, to get their reports in so they get their funding, knowing that it wasn't necessarily, you know, on par with what actually happened. Um, sometimes people were working overtime without pay in order to deliver the humanistic side of services that was really being stripped out of, um, you know, of their time with, with clients and with people that they worked with. So these acts of um, bending the rules are also a form of resisting you know, the box that managerialism is trying to put us in. Yeah, and I, I want to add, um, there's another kind of resistance. These are kind of intentional things that people do. Um, but I want to sort of go in just a little bit um, to the kind of things that we do, some of which Jen mentioned, that you might not think of resistance, and even those may not be thought of, but other things we do that might be resistance that um, some, some of the people listening to this might even think they're resisting, but you might want to reconsider after <laughs> we talk about this. So, and this happens um, on the individual and on the collective way. So on, uh, on, the, um, on the individual, um, Basically, some of the things that workers do, they basically expose managerialism as uncaring by virtue of the fact that to meet client needs, they have to work overtime without pay, which we found, or that they take work home, or that they work through their lunch hour, they come in early, they skip sick leave, bring needed supplies from home. And so they're trying to extend the capacity of the agency, of the social service agency, to, to serve clients well but they do it at their own expense. And so um, when, and when they do this, it has been interpreted, and it, we've started to think about this, it's been interpreted as um, they have to do all this to meet clients' needs. And their behavior implicitly or explicitly, but probably more implicitly or unintentionally, suggests that the agencies can't do the job, that the agencies aren't doing the job. Therefore, I have to put this extra time in. I have to eat into my work, work my family time, and so on. And but they do it at their own expense. And so, manager, they expose managerialism is uncaring. And th this is all put in the context of women's work because now these women are the caretakers. Women are the most of the social workers and women are saying we want to take care of our, we want to do our care work and managerialism is getting in our way so we have to basically uh, do it ourselves at our own expense um, and so the second one is is that it's sort of related is that manage that their work under there's other ways that they undercut the promise they make man of managerialism so again pushed by the demands of productivity efficiency accountability some work is actually pushback. It could be but an unintentional pushback, or it could be intentional. We, you, you'd, we'd have to go with, with deep interviews about this. But they slow down their work. They lower their performance to reclaim some time, some of the things I mentioned. 
They want more control over the work. They refuse to comply with paperwork demands, take long breaks, do non-work tasks at home, like make personal calls, use social media, shop on, you know, online. So these, you don't think of these things. We all do this. And I'd like people who are listening to think how much they do either of these, any of these things. Um, but intentionally or not, it makes managerialism look bad. It makes manage, which is a form of resistance because managerialism has promised productivity, efficiency, accountability, and all these things undercut those outcomes. And so they make managerialism look bad. And so, um, so some of some of people who, who study the question of resistance said these two things um, are examples of resistance that we need to pay more attention to as workers ourselves or as observers of managerialism. And the other thing about this is that it's much of this is gendered because some of the things that women do, they say, oh, this is just what women do. So it doesn't, it, that's how it, it's an, a gendered expectation that we would bend over backwards, take care of things at our own expense. That's what the society says. So there's a gendered piece to this caring uh, story. Um, and so, yeah, so I think the, the intentional things like ignoring the rules, you know, ignoring eligibility, all the things that uh, requirements that Jen said, but then there are these more subtle versions, which we can think of and decide we, we don't want to resist in these ways, or we want to um, puff it up a little bit and use it as a method of resistance. But that's, a, that's another story. But I think it's a useful market to look at. I, I, oh, let me just make, also, uh, oh yeah, go ahead, Mimi. I just want to say one more thing, collective, and then so and, and collective is more we're more familiar with collective. So some agencies they um collective they engage in advocacy, either one on one advocacy or community advocacy on behalf of the whole outreach. Um and or some of them do this as part of the job, some do it as you know, my day job is being a social worker, my 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 off work out my off work job is I'm an activist, I'm an advocate, you know, or they form or they form professional associations, joint trade unions, connect with social movements. They do social change work either inside the agency through its mechanisms or outside because the social many social workers have a need to change things. Sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, no, um, I, I'm most interested in hearing what you, have to, what you have to say about it. But it was reminding when you were talking about, especially individual direct line worker, and you've presented, um, you know, the ways that people have to, uh, how they deal with um, being overworked. But I also think about Michael Lipsky and um, Evelyn Brodkin uh, and the street level bureaucracies. And there's probably also a piece here where uh, workers sometimes have to make decisions about efficiencies. Uh, based on, you know, those who really feel the, you know, the sanctioning power. And there are times where maybe they would have made a different decision about how they were treating a client or what the, if they had the time or if they had the support. And they know that that would be a better decision or outcome for the client. But because of the time factor, they find that they, they, they create actually routinized patterns of addressing these systematized problems that come to them that they just um, rationalize themselves because of the, under this regime, I'm going to have to do it this way. They have no choice. Yeah. They, have, yeah. they feel like right. they have no I, choice. Yeah. yeah, I do think that's true. But I, I do think that we saw even in our data some evidence that, um, you know, where people could um, use their professional autonomy to make decisions about eligibility or you know, fudge a couple of facts and, and get someone some services. They were still using that, you know, if people are familiar with street level bureaucracy, that that sort of 
you know, power within the constraints that they had it in to, you know, help clients. And I think that is a, a key, you know, form of resistance that's still going on, but the space for doing that is shrinking as people are, you know, overworked and, and more surveillance is being done of their work. Also. And when we talked about bending the rules, that's exactly what we were talking about. Those are, those are intentional things that are done. Um, they may not call, think of it as resistance, but bending the rules is bending the rules. And so, so um, I would just like to add one more thing, maybe uh, to end on a, a positive note. Uh, dis <laughs> despite all this, despite all these problems that people are experiencing, despite the constraints and so on, we found optimism at the end. Amazing optimism in our field. Um, 80 to 90% of the people remained optimistic. They said they believe in their program. They think their work is important. They believe that their work makes an important contribution to society. So this optimism is what we have to work with to try to um, make a profound change in our field and try to undo managerialism. Yes. Uh, Jen, do you want to add anything uh, we were thinking about? I guess I, you know, through the through the conversation we've been having today, and the and the points where we've um, touched on the current moment that we're in, regarding you know um, COVID nineteen and sort of what that's revealed about the underpinnings of our society, followed up by you know the response to um, you know police violence that has been mounting you know over so many years, you know just the fact that um, through those efforts we're really looking at systems. Um, systems of health and um, systems of racism that we um, tolerate uh, and that we have lived with for so long. And in a way, what we're talking about here regarding managerialism is also a system. And it's a system of running our version of you know, human services through this business model lens. Um, and I think it's a good time to you know, look at reframing that and to you know, hopefully find that human service workers as women and as people of color and as people who have come out of so many of the social problems and communities facing these problems that we talk about, you know, that we can stand up to and, and look at, um, you know, reimagining these systems so that they can really um, do, do the, the work and the healing that we need them to do. Exactly. If I could just go back to my, I just follow that up because that's perfect to say that um, as I tell my students in the beginning of the semester, if I can end our chat with, What's done can be undone. And that's what we're talking about, changing those systems. I, that's wonderful. And, and uh, the f final act of resistance is to um, have new ideas and imagine a different way. Um, the neoliberalism was an idea, right? And it, and it just grew and grew over. When we can have different ideas and we can try to institute them and, and do different, have different systems of uh, working with disenfranchised populations. And actually... Um, many people are saying, and I think we're all thinking, that the current moment, as they call it an inflection period, between COVID exposing all the disparities and Black Lives Matters and the failures of the government to take care of us, everybody, and society, is, um, is a, opening a door to just what you said, a new policy imagination where we can think of things, either we're going to go towards something more progressive or we're going to go to something more authoritarian. And... We're at the point now where Americans, including social workers, have to decide which side they're on and what they want to fight for. Well, with that, I want to thank you both for your expertise and your time today. It's been such a privilege to have this conversation with you. Um, please keep up your good work uh, and uh, I know we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity to air all, all these 
ideas and thoughts. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.